Welcome to the IEEE Digital Reality Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This podcast series showcases insightful conversations with industry leaders in AI, virtual reality, augmented reality, XR, smart robots, and much more. It serves as the leading community for projects and activities on a range of immersive technologies, keeping audiences at the forefront of industry-leading advancements. This special episode, brought to you by IEEE Future Directions corporate partner Microsoft, features Kent Anderson, Microsoft's Director of Autonomous AI Adoption. Kent shares insights and advice on how machine teaching and autonomous AI can leverage human expertise to help upskill communities. Kent, thank you for taking time to contribute to the IEEE Digital Reality Podcast Series. Let's start by defining the terms of our conversation. What is machine teaching, and how do you distinguish between rules-based artificial intelligence and autonomous AI? Machine teaching, you know, its core is a lot like teaching, and I consider them to be similar in that teaching and machine teaching as a paradigm for uh, training autonomous AI is really about capturing and codifying human expertise, human experience, what people already know about uh, how to perform a skill or how to um, achieve a goal when completing a task or how to make a decision in real time. But now that you have an algorithm that can learn, and when I say learn, I don't mean that it has the capabilities of the human mind or it learns exactly in the same way as the human mind, but when you change your behavior, based on feedback as you're learning and practicing and exploring, um, or as you're practicing and exploring, that, that's a lot like learning. So if, if an algorithm can learn, then you actually don't need a new algorithm or set of instructions. Every time you need to accomplish a new task, you actually need a teacher. You need to teach it. Um, I like to think of it like with my son. My son's uh, nine years old now, but back when he was uh, much younger, and I was teaching him how to do things like, uh, you know, shoot a basketball or, um, you know, hit a tennis ball, or uh, now we're actually working on, you know, how to fly a drone. I don't need to get a new child. Every time uh, it's time for a new task, I just teach that child uh, something new. And what teaching fundamentally is, is guiding the practice. So, uh, and that's the, really the second part of your question. How do you distinguish between rules-based AI and autonomous AI? Um, rules-based AI is explicit instructions. Um, and if you teach that way, you need to have a huge amount of instructions. And that was one of the problems with expert systems or one of the downfalls of expert systems is for every rule, there's so many exceptions to the rules that you have to explicitly document um, and maintain and keep updated in order for the intelligence to be intelligence. But when you're using um, rules to as guidance for teaching, then it actually guides exploration. So in basketball, if I say to my son, hey, there's really two basic ways for you to um, score in basketball. There's this thing called the layup and there's this thing called the jump shot. And I teach him how to do the jump shot. I'm not, I'm not telling all the joints in his body exactly um, how to move. Um, even if I could do that, that's not the best way for him to learn. The best way for him to learn is for me to guide the exploration and say, and it sounds like rules, like when you're shooting a jump shot, your, um, your non-dominant hand should be on the side of the basketball, guiding the basketball. Um, and then he'll practice it 
and he'll try it in a lot of different ways. Um, and he'll figure out his, his own unique way to shoot the jump shot and he'll actually adapt it under the circumstances. That's actually the big difference between rules-based artificial intelligence and autonomous AI is the learning and the experimentation. You use the rules as a starting point, but then you experiment and learn. But those rules that provide the starting point keep you from exploring all sorts of things that have almost no promise in you achieving the task or accomplishing the task well. You have a history of taking new and promising technologies to market. What makes you especially optimistic about machine learning and autonomous AI? So I first got introduced to machine learning algorithms when I was working on some technology for a startup that I had founded. And we were classifying things. We were doing um, some uh, predictions. We were using it to, to um, take uh, uh, things and, and make segments or clusters. And those are some of the, the things that are most commonly done with machine learning, you know, predicting, uh, detecting anomalies, uh, classifying. But I was really excited to find out that you can also use machine learning to make real-time decisions. Um, I realized that there was some other attractive and unique characteristics um, like learning strategy. And you see this in the alpha series of AI by DeepMind, Google's DeepMind AI lab out of London, um, where they uh, trained reinforcement learning and in some other techniques, interesting techniques uh, fused together with it in uh, neural networks to play chess and Go and then uh, Shogi, uh, other games. And you see it learning strategy. It starts off with really naive strategies like um, capturing the most stones in Go. Um, and then it goes to more sophisticated strategies. It actually uh, discovered on its own and then used very frequently the 12 most common opening strategies in chess. I find that completely fascinating. It actually taught me something about strategy itself. It taught me that strategy isn't some you know, crutch that humans use to get by. Strategy is actually something that is an artifact of the, the environment. The game of chess kind of dictates that certain strategies work at certain times and other strategies work at other times. And I find it fascinating that this AI discovered some strategies that were um, discovered, this first uh, discovered by humans anyway, um, hundreds or even a thousand years ago. So now that AIs entered this kind of more human-like decision-making realm. So one, it's making decisions. You know, a prediction isn't a decision. For example, um, you know, prediction about the weather, how likely it is to rain, is, isn't a decision about whether to take an umbrella. Um, now, if the prediction is very uh, likely or unlikely, then I can easily attach it, an expert rule to make that decision. In other words, if it's greater than 90% chance likely if, it's, if the likelihood of rain is greater than 90% chance, then I should take an umbrella, that's easy. If it's uh, the likelihood is less than 10% that it's gonna rain, that's pretty easy too. But then, you know, what if the likelihood of rain is, according to the prediction is 40 to 60%? Well, it's a little fuzzier then, it's not quite easy, as easy to translate that prediction into a decision. But now that AI is making um, actual decisions in the real world, and some of these are 
can be really high value decisions, then I think <clears throat> there's potential to um, improve almost anything. In fact, um, and in a lot of times in AI um, circles, we make a big deal about um, whether decisions are sequential and sequential decision-making. But I like to rely on <clears throat> the definition of the word process. Um, a process is a series of sequential decisions um, that uh, are made towards a particular goal. And so if you think about it that way, an AI that can make you know, series of sequential decisions and learn strategy along the way that can um, use perception and use images or videos or even sounds to um, make uh, those decisions while processes are all around us. That, that has the opportunity to, uh, to change almost everything about how we you know, make and move things. So Kent, do you have any particular concerns related to these technologies? There's a, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot. There's, first of all, there's, there's ethical concerns. So when you think about more human-like decision-making, you start moving towards autonomy. To me, what autonomy is, is um, more human-like decision-making. So what, what makes an optimization algorithm not you know, fully autonomous or a control system not fully autonomous is that in a bunch of different situations, it can't make the kind of decisions that we would make. So, you know, if a, if you have a, a math-based control system driving your car, well, a math-based control system can't um, take in visual input so it can't see and it can't take in auditory input so it can't hear um, without an extreme amount of, you know, custom built uh, calculation. Same is true for an expert system or for an optimization algorithm. Um, but as you get closer to autonomy, there's all sorts of ethical concerns. Like how should this technology be used? Should you use it for warfare? Uh, should you uh, use it in safety critical situations? Should you let it make decisions about the lives of human beings? Uh, should you use it in law enforcement? I mean, this, the list, the ethical list is really, really long. Um, the way I personally uh, rationalize that in my, in my own mind is um, the best way to ensure that any technology gets used for good is to actually do something good with it, actually go ahead and use it to good, for good. So I'm very proud of the work um, that uh, I got to participate in using autonomous AI in buildings on Microsoft's Redmond West campus, that's Microsoft's corporate campus, um, a certain part of the campus, seven buildings we've been controlling for the last year and saving 12% on energy. And you think, okay, well, if we could self save 12% or maybe more, maybe less energy uh, usage in all the buildings at Microsoft or all the buildings in you know, a certain city or in the United States or in the world, wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of carbon savings. Um, those seven buildings use uh, three million tons of carbon per year. So you can do the math there um, at uh, the impact that we might be able to have on the environment. That's, that's great, that's a good thing. In what areas of life do you see machine teaching and autonomous AI being used in tandem to help upskill communities? For example, you've written about multiplying the value of scarce, high quality expertise by converting them into teachers of other people within an organization. Could you please talk a little bit about the industrial solutions these capabilities could help solve? 
or any other applications you may have seen? Absolutely. Uh, this is an area I'm very passionate about. And one of the things that I'm most excited about with machine teaching is it allows a path for lots of different communities, some communities which are already underrepresented in technology, whether that's uh, racial minorities, uh, by socioeconomic status, uh, by access to education, uh, or even different ability levels to participate in autonomous AI. And uh, there's a great quote by Robert Schiller. Um, he won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2013, I believe. And he was basically talking about AI. He was describing it as the fourth industrial revolution, as many people do. And he was saying, you can't wait for massive dislocations in people's economic mobility or economic status that come from a disruptive technology like AI because some groups have access to it and benefit from it financially and others don't. You can't wait until that happens um, before you start you know, addressing it and providing access. Uh, I was actually sitting on a panel for, the, um, for AI and manufacturing. It was a work group actually um, that, uh, ask the question, well, why hasn't software had more impact on manufacturing? You know, there's some, some industries or verticals like finance, you can think of things like algorithmic trading um, where software has had a huge impact already, but manufacturing and logistics are not, are two industries where that hasn't really happened. And the conclusion that we came to in that work group was that Manufacturing actually is about skills. It's actually about high value skills. You can't replace a skill with an algorithm. My vision is that some of these operators that I was talking to at these chemical plants and, and discrete manufacturing centers and warehouses um, will be able to, as part of their training for the job, learn how to build AI and design AI using the same concepts and skills that comprise this AI and bring that AI with them into the control room and use it and update it um, kind of like a partner or, or a colleague. And now they're AI experts and not just quote unquote operators. So Kent, you've written about how today's AI is not science fiction, but also not an all knowing super brain. Can you please elaborate on this theme? Yes. So first let's just acknowledge, and this is part of the problem with AI and AI research and machine learning research sometimes and there's no that's no knock or no shade but one of the downfalls is when you treat it as a silo it doesn't really acknowledge the way that people have been doing things for a very very long time um, control systems have been making automated decisions in factories and other places for for a hundred years the PID controller was invented in 1912 um, by the US Navy and in every factory everywhere, you're gonna find a PID controller. These PID controllers, these uh, control systems, they're based on math. So they use a mathematical model or mathematical formula or understanding of the world to make their decision. Um, it would be like uh, if you or I made a decision in our life based on a calculation. So uh, maybe if we decided where we were gonna go on vacation, just simply by calculating the distance, you know, on a map between two places. 
And that's a reasonable way to, to, to guide your decision-making for, uh, for where to go on a vacation. It's usually not the only thing that we consider. And that's the problem with using mathematical formulas is if you don't have, if the mathematics don't describe the entirety of the problem or the decision, the things you need to consider, then in some situations, you're gonna make bad decisions, especially when your, your mathematical model of the world is not right. Then you've got things like optimization algorithms. They're searching options. Optimization algorithms are going through and they're, and they're searching different possible options or considering things to do. And then they're using some objective function to give you an idea of uh, whether you should make that decision or not. That would be like sitting down to play tic-tac-toe and every time you make a move, you have, you list, make a list of all the available squares. And then you have some objective function, maybe how many adjacent open squares will there be if you make that particular move? And then you made the list, you sorted the list by your objective function and you chose what was at top, the top of the list. You didn't apply any logic or any other kind of reasoning. You just used what the table told you based on your objective function. That's how optimization algorithms work. It's not, it's not a bad thing or a good thing. It's actually a really uh, strong way to make decisions when you don't have a lot of knowledge about what to do and when there's a lot of options to search and explore. Um, it's a bad way to make decisions when you have a lot of pre-existing knowledge. And that's what expert systems are about. Expert systems are about codifying rules that describe what you already know, which is really great if you know a lot, not great if you don't know much. So if you're trying to figure out how to run a nuclear fusion reactor, which doesn't technically exist yet, um, no one knows how to run a nuclear fusion reactor. So uh, expert system is probably not a great way to make that decision. So the, to me, the more nuanced and much more sound perspective is there's lots of different decision-making techniques. Machine teaching allows you to combine those decision-making techniques. So the, the framework that I prescribe for designing AI is we'll take a task, whether it's playing basketball, playing chess, uh, controlling a process in a factory, decompose it into its skills that are required to complete the task, and then choose how the skills fit together. Um, you do this skill first, then this other skill, or uh, you need to choose between the opening strategies and then the mid game strategies in chess and then the end game strategies in chess. And then you choose which technology, which decision-making technique you're gonna to use to perform each skill. What's been the impact of the global pandemic and has it accelerated innovation and adoption in this space? I think it has, I mean, if you think particularly in logistics. Um, logistics is one of those industries where it still relies really heavily on humans. Now, to be fair, there's this really uh, interesting and exciting field called operations research, which has used optimization algorithms to help make logistics decisions for a very long time, uh, decades. But one of the challenges is these optimization algorithms that search for options they don't respond well to uncertainty, but then there's the kind of fluctuations that happen because of the economy or things like a pandemic. And so the pandemic totally shifted the way supply chains were needed to operate and the way logistics decisions needed to be made. And there, some of the scenarios were scenarios maybe we hadn't seen since 1918, maybe the Spanish flu, or maybe we had never seen before. 
in modern logistics. And so um, there were a lot of shortages. Obviously, there's a lot of factors to why those shortages happen. It's not just bad decision-making in logistics, but different decisions needed to be made. So I think that makes a lot of people think, hey, if we had more um, autonomous decision-making, even if that is to support a human being, not replacing a human being, um, or helping a human being make better decisions, maybe for scenarios that that particular human being, even though that they've been doing this for the last 30 or 40 years, well, there hasn't been a global pandemic in the last 30 or 40 years. And what if an AI could have rehearsed some of these scenarios in simulation, even after the pandemic started and started advising experts on, on what they might want to do? That was That's actually one of the biggest asks I get from people who run factories is, my experts are really good at what they do, but they have a, a school of thought or a strategy that they tend to prefer. And I want to help my experts understand when the strategy that they tend to prefer, and we all do this, um, is not the strategy that's best for this particular scenario and help them understand why. Now that's a situation where autonomous AI could totally you know, help. And I think the pandemic is making people um, think about this. How would you advise an organization today on how to take stock of where machine teaching and autonomous AI might be applied within its specific context? Yes. How should an organization get started? In almost all of the autonomous AI projects I've ever worked on, there is a data scientist around that's doing exploratory data analysis, building perception models, like building models that predict things. These are all very important parts of autonomous AI. but Machine teaching shows us that because um, the act of building an autonomous AI, like the ones I gave examples of today, is actually more like teaching than programming. Learn about machine teaching. We're, um, you know, there's a lot of folks um, from a lot of different perspectives that are exploring this idea of machine teaching. And if you can enable your large larger groups of subject matter experts to use paradigms and frameworks like machine teaching. Some people call it other things. Um, you know, there's a different uh, uh, kind of analogous terminology that people are using for um, this idea of a teaching abstraction um, and combining different technologies into autonomous AI. And if you can educate more subject matter experts with that, and if they have some platform, maybe a low-code platform that enables them to participate in the design and building process, then you can combine that with the tools you already have, the, the experts you already have and, and the, their expertise on the processes to build autonomous AI at scale. So Kent, how do you assess the limitations of automated, autonomous, and human decision-making? And how do you see each of their roles evolving over time? They each have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, you know, human decision-making is very nuanced, um, but very biased and takes a long time. So we, uh, we take a long time to, uh, over lots of experience, to build our intuition about, you know, how to solve problems, how to, how to drive a car under different situations and, and all those kinds of things. Um, it's it's overkill for some, for some tasks. Like there's a lot of automation tasks that you can easily calculate uh, what to do. Um, 
and and it takes that that ex, that time and extensive experience to build up. Automated decision making we talked about it a bit earlier. Um, depending depending on which techniques you're using to make those automated decisions, they each have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, autonomous decision making, I think the biggest limitation is going to be understanding how intelligent that thing is in what situations it's going to make really good decisions and what situations it's not. Because it's not super intelligence, it's going to be good at specific tasks and not good at other tasks. It's going to be good in specific scenarios and not good at other scenarios. And it's going to be this, um, this exercise in validating upfront, but then monitoring while it's in place to make sure it's doing the kinds of things that you think it should. Can you share your views on the IEEE Digital Reality Initiative and how it's contributing to advanced machine learning and autonomous AI for the betterment of humanity? The thing that I respect most about IEEE is um, its deep, deep um, expertise in, uh, in engineering disciplines and its huge community of, of engineers. To me, machine learning can only go so far as it can integrate itself into the education of engineers um, and, and maybe researchers too. And, and influence you know, engineering research. So it can't stay in a silo. It's got, to, um, it's got to cross over into engineers that are building and validating and certifying uh, systems and processes every day. And to me, that's what IEEE Digital Reality Initiative is all about. Thank you for listening to our interview with Kent Anderson. To learn more about the IEEE Digital Reality Initiative, please visit our web portal at digitalreality.ieee.org.